You're listening to the teaching ministry of Harvest Fellowship Church in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. You can find out more about us on the web at www.harvestfellowshipchurch.org. We pray that through our teaching, we may present everyone mature in Christ. Please turn to your Bibles, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And please stand, if you're able, for the privilege of hearing from our Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And all God's children said, Amen. In our dependence upon the Lord, let us continue in attitude of prayer this morning. O Lord God, we recognize that your law is perfect, reviving the soul. So we come before you asking, O Lord, that as we hear your word, you would revive our souls. You said that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Lord, we, in the simplicity of our hearts and minds, ask, O Lord, for your wisdom as we study your word together. You said the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We thank you, O Lord, that as we study your word together, our hearts rejoice in your goodness, in the revelation of Christ that you provide so richly. Lord, we rejoice this morning. Give us ears to hear, O Lord, what you would say to your church today through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if you were with us last week, you may remember that our initial study in Ephesians chapter 2 ended in a fearful, even desolate place, a place that we might call 
Death Valley, that eerie graveyard where the prophet Ezekiel found himself surrounded by piles and piles of dead men's bones. And God said to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? Well, as we contemplate Paul's description of the natural man, the fleshly man, who is wholly given over to sin, we have to ask ourselves that same question. Can these bones live? Is it possible for men and women who are dead in sin and transgression to be resurrected, raised to new life in Jesus Christ? Once again, we remember what Paul said in verses 1 through 3, where he said, And you, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, as I said last week, because of the fall of man in the garden, every part of man's essential being, his mind, his will, his emotions, as well as his physical body, have been radically corrupted by sin. And sadly, friends, there is nothing, nothing whatsoever that man of and by himself can do to redeem himself. His highest thoughts and his best efforts are thoroughly tainted by sin so that we are unable to save ourselves. I read an illustration this week from Kent Hughes. He gave this great picture to help us understand our hopeless condition in sin. He said this, he said, imagine an airplane flying over the Atlantic Ocean suddenly crashes a thousand miles away from the nearest coast. Well, on board that airplane, there were three passengers. One was a world record holding Olympic swimmer. Then there was an average swimmer like many of us. And then there was one poor soul who couldn't even take a stroke. He was a non-swimmer. Well, as the plane began to sink, the Olympic hero cried out and he said, follow me and I will get you home. That renowned athlete dove into the water and he began to swim toward the tip of South Africa at an impressive rate. The other two passengers followed that Olympics lead, but in a matter of 30 seconds, the non-swimmer sank like a rock into the dark abyss. Well, the average swimmer was sufficiently inspired by that brave athlete, and he gave it every possible effort. But in about 30 minutes, he succumbed to the tumultuous sea, and he gave up the ghost. Well, as for that brave Olympian, 
Well, he churned and churned away diligently in the ocean for 25 long hours. And he covered an impressive span of 50 miles. That in itself was truly an amazing feat. And now he only had 475 more hours to swim. At his current pace, if he didn't slow down at all, he would make it to Africa in 19 or 20 days. All this, my friends, to say that man's separation from God is so great and the gulf is so wide that man, in his flawed and sinful condition, has nothing, nothing he can possibly do to bridge the gap, nothing he can do to restore himself to fellowship with his holy creator. Kent Hughes said this, he says, we can try, but all of our works will be no more beneficial than rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. After spending three verses describing the desperate condition of man, Paul introduces a, a bold and even magnificent contrast in two very simple words. He said, but God, but God. And folks, this is not the first time, not the first time that this bold contrast has been used to highlight a great transition from death to life. When the earth was engulfed by the flood and every living creature was destroyed in Genesis, after the waters had prevailed upon the earth for 150 days, we hear these words, but God. But God remembered Noah and all of the beasts and all of the livestock that were there with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth and the waters subsided. In Acts chapter 13, Paul explained the gospel to the Jews in Antioch of Pisaida. And he spoke of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In verse 28, he said, And though they found in him, that is in Christ, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. And then in verse 30, we hear the words, But God. But God raised him up from the dead. My friends, these are two of the greatest words in all of the Bible. Mankind was separated from God because of sin. He was held captive to the world, the flesh, and the devil, as we saw last week. He was perishing underneath of the weight of God's wrath. When we were without hope, when we were without God in the world, Paul said, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Charles Hodge got it right when he said this. He said, notwithstanding our low and helpless condition, God interfered for our 
recovery. I love that. God interfered for our recovery. Like the rest of mankind who are dead in sin and transgression, we too were destined to experience God's wrath. But because of his abundant mercy and the great love with which he loved us, even when we were spiritually dead, separated from God, lost in the darkness of sinful depravity and estranged from God, he made us alive together with Christ. You see, my friends, God did not wait for us to get our act together. He didn't wait for us to seek him. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 3, Paul described man's sinful condition in these words. He said, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one. How many times have you heard some well-meaning preacher say, you know, God is a gentleman. He stands at the door and knocks. And if we will just open the door, he will come in. How many times have we heard that? My friends, the prophet Ezekiel, think about it, could stand at the door of that valley of dry bones and knock all day long. But those who are dead in sin have no ability to answer the door. Why? Because they're dead. They are dead in sin and transgressions. When we understand the biblical doctrine of total depravity, we realize that we don't need a gentle Jesus who will tenderly knock at the door of our heart. We need a Savior who will break down the door and breathe the breath of life into our dead corpses. We need someone who will huff and puff and break the door down. So how exactly does God save sinners? That's what we'll discover this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. How does God save sinners? Well, the Reformers summed this portion of Scripture up and brought us these wonderful five solas. Five alones, if you will. Our salvation is by grace alone. It is through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. So this morning, as I'm working through an outline, we're going to follow that somewhat. We'll do four out of the five, at least this morning anyway. We'll cover this. Grace is the source of our salvation. Second, Christ is the ground of our salvation. Third, faith is the means of our salvation. And the glory of God is the goal of our salvation. So we have the source, we have the ground, we have the means, and we have the goal of our salvation. We'll follow those in that outline. Now, most, Christ <clears throat> excuse me, most Christians in the church today recognize their sin and freely confess their need for God's grace. But many will see salvation as a, a joint effort between God and themselves. They will say that God has done everything that he can, and the rest is up to us. You see, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but we have to believe. 
And they would say that by an act of our own free will, we must choose Christ. But friends, that's not what the Bible teaches. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul said, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, he said, it cannot. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is an important portion of Scripture. And I want you to take note here that Paul uses the word cannot, which speaks of man's inability. He cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul doesn't say that man chooses not to please God. He says that they cannot please God. And the wording speaks of ability, not choice. How many times as a child in our classroom when we are a Sunday school teacher says, can I go to the bathroom? I said, well, I'm sure you probably can. But now in the middle of this classroom, will I give you that ability then? Will I give you that freedom to go and do that? Yes. Well, in his natural fallen condition, man has no ability whatsoever to submit to God's law. Sin has so contaminated every part of man's being that he is unable, incapable of pleasing God. Now, in light of our complete inability to save ourselves, then we are wholly dependent upon the grace of God as the source. The grace of God as the source of our salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, we discovered that the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and that he predestined us for the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The sovereign election and adoption of the Father were in accord with the purpose of God's will and to the praise of his glorious grace. So, my friends, the grace of God alone is the source of our salvation. By grace, the Father chose those who he would save. By grace, the Son redeemed those who were chosen by the Father. And by that same grace, the Spirit then regenerated those whom the Father chose and the Son redeemed. And these things are very clear all throughout the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, Paul writes this. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've heard this many times before. And then he said, and they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of or according to his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So the saving grace of Jesus Christ was allotted to the elect of God before the ages began. In Titus, we read chapter 3 and verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. 
not because of any works that were done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Listen to this. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So this grace, this grace is the source of our salvation. These and many other passages teach us that grace is the source of our salvation. So if you are saved today, you have been redeemed from slavery to sin. If you have been adopted into the family of God as a true son of God, then your salvation was a sovereign, monergistic work of Almighty God. So what is that word? That word monergistic, mono ergo. Two different words brought together. Mono means one, ergon means work. So salvation is the work of God alone. The work of God alone. What's the difference? Well, synergism means that I'm working with God. I'm working with God for that salvation. But we know from the word of God, as we continue to go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, that salvation is a monergistic work of God. He saved us when we were dead. Now that we understand that grace is the source of our salvation, let's go on and consider the ground of our salvation. And friends, the ground or the rock or the foundation of our salvation is Jesus Christ alone. In 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 47, Samuel writes, says, The Lord lives and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The self-existent God. The word here is Yahweh. Kids, we studied this on Wednesday night. Yahweh, the self-existent God, who lives eternally, is the unshakable rock of our salvation. And the prophet Isaiah agreed with that in chapter 28, verse 16. He said, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Peter used the same verse. The Apostle Peter picked it up, and in his first epistle, when he identified the Lord Jesus Christ as the ground, as the sure foundation of our salvation. And like living stones then, you and I, we who believe, have been joined together with Christ, who is the chief cornerstone of God's New Testament temple. Do you remember when Jesus was walking with his disciples he was walking with them in Caesarea Philippi. And in Caesarea Philippi, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to, there's this massive rock wall. And underneath of that rock wall comes bubbling out the Jordan River. From underneath of the rock, as the snow is melting on Mount Hermon, it goes underground and comes underneath of this massive rock, bigger than this building. And it comes out. And as Jesus is walking with them, you see, the, this was a place where all the Roman soldiers gathered and etched into that rock. They put pictures of their own idols. There was Zeus. There were different idols that the, that the Romans had worshipped. 
And it's in that scenario where Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Amidst all these idols, who do men say that I am? And you know this story. Peter responded. He said, excuse me, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Nobody told you this, Peter. The Father opened the eyes of your understanding graciously, wonderfully, so that you could see who I truly am. And he said, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, now that's not the rock of Peter, but the confession of Christ as Lord. On that rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, you heard it, will not prevail against it. Well, the firm and unshakable rock, the ground of our salvation, is the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul told the believers in Rome, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So here we have the source and the ground of our salvation. The source is God's grace. The ground is the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Now, as we continue on in Romans chapter 3, we get to verse 25 where Paul writes and says, whom God has put forward. This is Christ whom God has put forward. What does it mean to put forward? It means to put on display. Through Christ, God has put on display as a propitiation by his blood. Christ has been put on display as a propitiation by his blood to be received, how? By faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Throughout the Old Testament, God used types and God used shadows sacrifices and offerings to point his people to the person and work of Jesus Christ so that when he came, they would see, they would know. But now, at the end of the age, Christ has appeared to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity by the sacrifice of himself. As the reformers so powerfully taught, it is in Christ alone, solus Christos, that we find the ground, the ground, the foundation of our salvation. Now let's move on to faith. Faith which is the means or faith which is the instrument of our salvation. This becomes evident in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, where Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Folks, it's not only here in Ephesians 2, but all throughout the Holy Scripture, faith is the instrument of salvation. We saw that in Genesis chapter 15. Faith is the instrument of salvation. Faith is not the source of salvation. Grace is. 
God does not save us because we have faith. Faith is not the ground of salvation or the foundation of salvation. Christ is. It is through his redemption on the cross that we are saved. So what is faith? Well, faith is the God-given instrument by which we laid hold of the righteousness of Christ. Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11, paragraph 2, which says, Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Now, let's try to understand this. Right? One of my favorite preachers, was Brian Borgman, used a very simple illustration he used that illustration to help the children in his congregation understand how faith is the instrument of our salvation. So kids, you need to pay attention to this, right? You need to pay attention to this. And he began with reminding the children of something that they are all very familiar with, right? We need to eat food in order to live and remain healthy, right? We need to eat in order to live, in order to remain healthy. You know this, when God placed Adam in the garden, he provided him with a wide variety of healthy fruits and vegetables for him to enjoy. As a matter of fact, everything that Adam needed to nourish his body was supplied by the creator who placed him in the garden. Then Brian asked, hmm, what do you need to do? Think about this, kids. What do you need to do to food in order to access all the nutrients that are contained in that food? What do you need to do to that food? Well, you need to pick it up and you need to eat it, right? How many times do your parents say, pick up that fork and eat your vegetables, right? How many times do they say that? Well, our gracious creator gave us a digestive system through which the vitamins and minerals, the carbs and proteins that are contained in the food can be absorbed into our bloodstream to bring life to every cell of our being. Now, if you were starving to death, okay, and somebody came and put a large plate of healthy food right in front of you, would that food save you? No. No. It wouldn't. You need to eat that food. You need to take it into your body in order to be delivered from starvation. You need to chew that food, digest that food in order to be saved from death. Well, the person who supplies the food is someone to someone who is starving is the source of their salvation. The food then is the ground of their salvation. But until they eat the food, they're still starving to death. In order to eat that food that is set before them, they need an instrument. They need something to get it from the plate into their mouth. So what would that be? That would be a fork or maybe a spoon, right? You need to get it from the plate into your mouth, and that would require, at least in my house, a fork or a spoon. Right? Now let's think about that. If you were really starving to death and someone put a plate in front of you and you picked up the fork and you ate, would you say then that the fork saved you? No, 
No, it was the food that saved you. The fork was only the instrument by which the food came into your body. In the same way, the Bible teaches us that faith is the instrument by which the benefits of Christ's perfect life, Christ's atoning sacrifice, and his resurrection are received into our individual lives. Romans chapter 3 and verse 25 again. Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, to be received through the instrument of faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So the sacrifice of Jesus Christ by which he removed God's wrath and accomplished reconciliation must be received by faith. Faith is the instrument that God has provided for his people to receive the benefits of Christ's atoning sacrifice. So we see the same idea of instrumentality used in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, okay, through the instrument of faith that God has given us, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the means. Faith is the instrument by which we have received the peace with God that Jesus acquired for us on the cross. When we were spiritually dead, God made us alive. When we were slaves to sin, God raised us up with Christ into the liberty of the sons of God. When we were condemned in our guilt, but now we are seated with him in heavenly places. And all of this is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The vast riches of this great and blessed salvation are exceedingly greater than anything our minds can comprehend, more than our hearts could possibly imagine. And we ask the question then, why? Why would God save sinful men and women such as us? Why would he save us? What's his motivation? Paul tells us in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The statement tells us that the reason for our salvation is the glory of God and the glory of God alone. Throughout the eternal ages, we will serve as trophies of God's grace, monuments of his mercy a living testimony to his boundless love and unwavering faithfulness. When we come across a monument somewhere in, in, in Washington or wherever, the monument is not drawing attention to itself. It's drawing attention to the one who did great exploits for our nation. Well, who is the one who saved us? It is Christ who saved us. So we, as monuments of his grace, are not drawing attention to ourselves because we did nothing absolutely nothing to gain this salvation. We draw all attention, all glory, all honor to Christ alone. In his commentary on Ephesians 2, Richard Phillips put it this way. He said, in our present lives, we are often afflicted. We stumble in sin and even the best of us 
are not very impressive when it comes to holiness and faith. It may be hard to believe, but everyone who is now joined to Christ in faith will one day be perfect in holiness and resplendent in the reflected glory of God. This is what the prophet Daniel saw in the final chapter of Daniel's prophecy. Chapter 12, verse 3, he said, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and forever. When the stars fall from the skies and the sun refuses to shine, it is the body of believers that will reflect the glory of God that will be the light of the world that is yet to come. In his word, God has given us a glimpse, a glimpse of the glory that is yet to come. And by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that hope of glory strengthens us for the trials that we face so frequently in this present life. In Romans chapter 8, Paul said this in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present life, this present time, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Friends, God has specifically designed our salvation in such a way as to exclude all human boasting so that all of the honor, all of the glory will go to God and God alone. Paul said this to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. He said, it is because of him. You have that? It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why do we boast of him? Because it is of him. It is because of him that we are in Christ today. Now, maybe like me, you were raised in a church that followed the teachings of Pelagius, or Jacob Arminius. These men believed that humanity was only tainted by sin, but not to the extent we could not cooperate with God's grace on our own. They taught that man is only partially depraved, not totally depraved. They would say that man's freedom of will remained intact so that he is then able to choose Christ on his own. They would agree. They would agree that man is sinful, but they would say that we can still recognize the truth and we can cooperate with God's grace. Theirs is a synergistic salvation. They say that we can choose to seek Christ on our own. We still need the grace of God for sure to save us. But they'll say that we can take the first steps toward Christ knowing that he will help us. We have this confidence that he will help us if we will come to him. So when I look at that, I think 
right? And we must run with all of our might towards the wall that separates us from God. And we must jump as high as we can. And we know that God will catch us. He will catch us. And he will bring us the rest of the way to glory. But we must run and we must jump as high as we can. Friends, that's a lie. Dead men can't run. Dead men can't jump. When we were dead in sin and transgressions, but God, who is rich in mercy, who is rich in mercy, he saved us. Joel Beakey said this. He said, God specifically designed our salvation to exclude all human boasting and to direct us to glorify God alone. So my friends, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are saved. Acts 16.31 Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.13 If you trust in and rely on Jesus Christ alone, you have eternal life. Romans 6.23 But listen carefully. If you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, that faith did not come from yourself. It was a gift from God. And you have no grounds for boasting. As Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, I chose you. It is because of him, because of the sovereign grace of God that you are in Christ this morning, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He went before us. He follows up after us. He carries us all the way to glory. Now, in closing, Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 contains some of the New Testament's most rich treasures of theology. We're going through them step by step, and we learn from Paul that theology should lead to doxology. As we go through these chapters Paul will lead us from truth to worship, from, from, from practical truths of Christ, from the theological truths that he's laying out for us into the glories of worship in all of heaven. So we end this morning with a word of praise and adoration to the one who called us out of death into life through Jesus Christ. At the end of the third chapter, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul moves from the theology of everything he's been saying to the doxology when he writes this. Now to him, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Oh, gracious Lord, we lift our voices in worship and adoration this morning. You alone are worthy of all honor. You are deserving of all adoration. By your grace, you saved us. For your glory, you redeemed us. Therefore, receive our words of praise, our words of thanksgiving, as we lift them joyfully to the throne of grace this morning. May you be glorified in the church 
We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.